0: It's, uh, it's so weird standing up in front of people not holding an instrument of some kind. You can hold one if you want. I could, but.
1: Yeah, that's true, maybe I will. If I get nervous enough, maybe I will. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so there's the title of the talk. I'm going to, uh, all these things will make themselves known. As as the talk goes on, um, but I will start by saying I woke up in the middle of the night, sometime in November, and I thought I have something that I'd like to share at church sometime, and I texted Jess the next day, and she said I was going to ask you to talk about the same thing, so there's something about the serendipity of that which. Uh, Anyways. She calls you up to ask if you're going to talk about vampires? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But to, okay, so to to really get started, I am going to read a poem that uh, Rachel shared last week from Jan Richardson called Beloved is Where We Begin, because I think that is a great place to begin anything from. So I'm going to be saying it to myself as much as I'm saying it to all of you, because I'm not nervous. Um, So, if you would enter into the wilderness, do not begin without a blessing. Do not leave without hearing who you are, beloved, named by the one who has traveled this path before you. Do not go without letting an echo in your ears, and if you find it is hard to let it into your heart, do not despair. That is what this journey is for. I cannot promise this blessing will free you from danger from fear from hunger or thirst from the scorching of sun or the fall of the night but i can tell you that on this path there will be help i can tell you that on this way there will be rest i can tell you that you will know the strange graces that come to our aid only on a road such as this that fly to meet us bearing comfort and strength that come alongside us for no other cause than to lean themselves toward our ear and with their curious insistence whisper our name Beloved, Beloved, Beloved Nearly a thousand years ago Long before the Twilight films, Van Helsing, or Bram Stoker's Dracula, small villages across Central and Eastern Europe were scattered among mountains, swamps, and fields where the winters were long and the growing seasons were short. Extended families lived year to year on what they could grow and hunt, preserving what they could to help them last through the winter. At this time, these villages started to document demons in their communities. They flew into the sky and sucked the rainwater out of the clouds. Droughts would befall villages, and the community risked not surviving the harsh winters. As time went on, these demons would gain an appetite for other forms of life force. In the villages, sudden weaknesses would befall the strongest, confusion would plague the clever, and they would die. The demons were known as Nosferatu, or the first vampire. The villagers began investigating and looking for patterns. Were those afflicted taking more than their fair share? Had they been knocked unconscious? What symptoms had they shown when they died? Steps were taken by villagers to protect their community. Rules and prohibitions were put in place. If someone were to overindulge in food or in sexual activities or to behave cruelly to one another, these people were at risk of being possessed by a vampire and harmful. There is historical documentation recording these vampire attacks. They were not metaphors or symbols, but the actual perpetrator of wasting diseases that caused people to suddenly get weaker and weaker. Vampires then weren't like our literary and film vampires now, they were real. Or were they? We know now that diseases like tuberculosis, internal cancers, HIV AIDS, Rheumatoid arthritis and MS display incredibly similar and sometimes identical symptoms to those attributed to vampires. To a community that had no conception of bacteria or biology, vampires were a suitable explanation as any. The explanation of vampires fit within their cultural understanding. They were a placeholder to explain what could not be understood. Vampires. A little bit about me for those who don't know some of my background. I grew up as the son of a pastor. My parents planted a church and appeared on national Christian television. And my mother fondly recalls the story from my elementary school teacher that I would walk around praying for my classmates. When people had questions about God, they came to eight-year-old Jacob. When I was 11, my parents went through their own faith deconstruction. My longest teacher and a minister of 20 years, my dad, had read hundreds of books, attended classes and seminars, and graduated from SSU's graduate program. So over a decade ago, in my adolescent years, I grew up listening to creative, progressive arguments around the kitchen table that changed the way I thought about God. Ideas that I could use to debate the priest in my Catholic middle school. Ideas unpopular in my small conservative town. Yet confidently and passionately, I consumed these positions. God's love included everyone, hell was unnecessary, and penal substitution, the position that God needed Jesus to satisfy his wrath was tossed out the window. I debated on Facebook and with classmates through college and university. But after a while, I felt like I had it all figured out. I had answers to the questions I was confident in and God felt more and more distant. 2019 was an agonizing season in my life. I had blown up my relationship, my mother was diagnosed with cancer, I faced my own health issues, and nearing graduation, I had academic goals that were no longer personally achievable. Through this season, I tried to cling to God, to my faith, my grasp tightening around his robe, hoping that things would get easier. I was able to travel with my class through Europe, where I I religiously, pun intended, attended Mass with my Catholic friends in some of the most ancient and sacredly held cathedrals in the world. Though with the intensity I was holding on, my grip weakened and I stopped attending. When I returned to St. Stephen in the fall, I kept going to church, but reluctantly. I was on the sound tech rotation, so I attended out of duty more than devotion. My faith was a hearth glowing faintly. In the spring of 2020, I participated in a decentering practice facilitated by the Irish philosopher Peter Rollins called Atheism for Lent. This was the description for the practice in 2020. In the contemporary world, Atheism is almost invariably viewed as opposed to the work and world of theology. At best, they barely tolerate each other. At worst, they wage war. As a result, we are often confronted with two impoverished positions atheism having, lar- having been largely reduced to an adolescent cry on behalf of a crude positivism. Theology languishing in the basement of academic institutions, offering as much insight into the world as astrology. Thankfully, there have always been thinkers who've grasped the profoundly theological dimensions of atheism and the deeply atheistic dimensions of theology. Individuals who see their artificial separation as detrimental not only to intellectual life, but to the task of personal and political transformation. By exploring atheism as a profane practice of theological purification, we will explore its priestly power of exorcism. An exorcism powerful enough to cast out not only religious dogmatism, but also the proliferation of all kinds of spiritualities that so often take its place. Sounded like a good practice. <laughs> so, my friend Evan, who had been teaching English in South Korea, and I decided to become atheists together for the 40 days of Lent. It's like what would it be like to take some take this season of giving up something, giving up your faith? say, okay, let's dig down and see what we really think. So we engage with materials such as excerpts, videos, and songs that dialogued for and against the existence of God. Touching on Plato, Augustine, Enlightenment, and modern thinkers. Explaining affirmations for God's existence and their negations. Every Monday at 7pm or 7am in Korea, we would call and reflect on last week's readings. Looking back as those six weeks progressed into spring, I met a winter. And those weeks grew darker and darker. I was holding belief in a vampire, a placeholder that could be explained away with reason, logic, psychology, and science. My grip loosened and the faint glow in the hearth had disappeared. God could not rationally exist. I could not justify a belief in God. God was dead. That sounds really fun. (laughs) So I was floundering. I didn't know what to believe or how to have hope or where to find courage. And at the end of the practice, Peter Rollins encourages participants to not fill this new sense of loss with anything. To try to not replace it, but to sit with it. And I vowed to. There's this idea within some sects of Christianity that there is a God-shaped hole in our hearts only God can fill. Peter Rollins refers to this as the myth of the sacred object. When our salvation is something that is external to us, it becomes unattainable and can be used as a tool of control. It is a replacement grasping at uncertainty, because the unknown can be terrifying to us. It is in our nature to be skeptical and afraid of the dark, and it is more comforting to have a vampire than to swim in the dark. So after vowing to not attempt to replace my newly demolished faith, I promptly proceeded to obsess over my art, my health, bullying myself into writing songs, drinking liters of water a day, practicing mindfulness religiously, anything to numb the grief of losing my faith of 20 years. My longest friend and source of comfort had vanished. I tried to pray and met a haunting silence. I turned to my art, and during a time of staying the blazes home, where so many people were sharing brilliant pieces of music, nothing I wrote felt significant. My sense of security rooted in my God and my art was lost. I was tired, tired of masquerading as an artist, as a believer. There were a few songs that were ringing through my head at the time, few lyrics specifically, one from Marcus Mumford, I don't even know if I believe, I don't know if I want to believe. And Nathaniel with, I'm still trying. So now I want to read an excerpt from a blessing from John O'Donohue titled For Grief. There are days when you wake up happy, again inside the fullness of life, until the moment breaks and you are thrown back onto the black tide of loss. Days when you have your heart back, you are able to function well until in the middle of work or encounter, suddenly with no warning, you are ambushed by grief. It becomes hard to trust yourself. All you can depend on now is that sorrow will remain faithful to itself. More than you, it knows its way and will find the right time to pull and pull the rope of grief until the coiled hill of tears has reduced to its last drop. Gradually, you will learn acquaintance with the invisible form of your departed. And when the work of grief is done, the wound of loss will heal. And you have learned to wean your eyes from the gap in the air and be able to enter the hearth in your soul where your loved one has awaited your return all the time. I don't know how to describe how much pride I had in my beliefs up to that point. How dogmatically I held what I knew, confidently, surely to be true. For it all to be stripped away so easily, I was left naked and vulnerable and afraid. Among the depression and the despair, through the therapy and the meditation and the conversations, seeds began to sprout up, the fruit of this labor. Evan and I, both the questions following Lent that year, and in my friendship with him, grew. We called more regularly, discussing what we had been reading, processing the aftermath of the deconversion, just checking in on life. It was incredible to have walked and then limped through Atheism for Lent with someone else for us to carry one another. I grew in my ability to question what I held to be true and began learning how to admit and shift when I was wrong. This included tending to myself and showing myself care because that can be a really hard place to be. I became aware of my own inner strength and being self-reliant, because when everything fell away, the only thing left was me. I needed to learn to take care of me. I needed to have my back and realize my own agency and inherent goodness, my belovedness. That meant investing more into my mental health and learning about my insecurities and my boundaries, practicing showing myself love, sitting with and listening to discomfort and knowing when to get up and when to walk away. This meant putting my guitars away for a while, meditating and exercising among other things. And I wanna add here that just because I'm aware of these things, it's something that I'm still learning. Just because I'm talking about them, you know, maybe in a confident way, doesn't mean I have them all figured out. And I'll go more into that, but I wanna mention one other thing. After months of wading through nihilism, despair, and depression, I began wading into new waters. I was craving certainty because I was uncomfortable with my doubt and my unknowing. My faith in God was intellectually based. But I noticed something in the back of my mind. Even though I could not prove God existed, and I didn't believe it, making a choice to believe in a God brought me some peace. Choosing to do something in the face of doubt felt calming and reassuring. And maybe that is faith. <clears throat> I still don't know if God exists. And I'm not sure that is a question that I feel the need to explore. So many thinkers across history have explored that question. For me, my need, my obsessive need to be certain, led to the death of my faith and belief. A rigid form of certainty makes us feel safe until it doesn't. I don't think that believing or praying and feeling better rationalizes the existence of God. I don't think that's necessary, but it has definitely brought me to some new places. So it is now 2023 and I am three weeks into my second round of atheism for Lent again. (laughs) Why? Why the hell would I do that again? The first time wrecked me, I was not at all prepared for the fallout, not that you can ever really be prepared for a deconstruction. This time I am entering the practice with all that I have gained in recent years. I have a friend to enter the unknown with again, I have more security within myself, Knowing my boundaries, I may actually be able to learn more this time around. In the 15th century, vampires were used to explain unexplainable phenomena. At this time, this was the best information they had. I was not able to continue clinging to vampires. To decenter my beliefs again is to reflect and experience on where I am, or to experience where I am to dig deeper into what I actually think and feel and to be honest. This is the value of it, a deeper knowing and experience of who I am, how I express myself, and how my joy and my insecurities appear, to wonder at what lies beneath each layer. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If this is true, then it feels like what I'm doing is connecting with spirit. Again, just because I'm aware of all this and I'm talking about it doesn't mean I have it all figured out. Undergoing a deconstruction or a deconversion does not necessarily equate to new behaviors or habits, nor does it rewrite neural pathways in the brain. Those pathways need coaching to be rewritten again. At the end of the Lenten practice, Ron advises to not replace what has been lost through the exorcism. But if others are like me, then it's pretty challenging not to replace one form of dogmatism, certainty, sense of control with another, whether that be political, social, or economic dogmatism. We can learn from history that well-intentioned people and movements have often repeated offenses they've condemned. And that's not something that I want to do through this. There's this meta theory that I'm fascinated with right now, and with many of my interests, I can often put the cart before the horse. I was talking to Diana about this in January, and she said, if you care about something, let it change you and share it from there. I want to be changed by what I learn and recreate my experience in the world, to participate in recreation or recreation. I want to rewrite the neural pathways for my beliefs, my actions, and my heart to be integrated together. I want to begin from curiosity and wonder, which are so innately human, and to deny them is to deny my humanity. Recreation is foundational in growing and living into values that stand among the rubble of deconstruction. I can grieve my losses and learn to begin and play in new creative ways. I have found an incredible value in reevaluating my beliefs from time to time instead of doing it once and saying you're done. I had a light version of deconstruction in my youth, and atheism for Lent was a main event for me, and it won't be the last. Engaging in this process has been a net positive. When you see your beliefs fail in front of your eyes, it is a very humbling thing, and it's one thing that keeps me from being dogmatic and self righteous. It's been two years since my Atheism for Lent practice. I needed time to heal, to gain confidence in myself, to allow myself to be interested and engaged in order to form new beliefs and hold new ideas. Now I get to go through the process again and evaluate evaluate my beliefs and see where I go from there. Three weeks in. (laughs) We'll touch base in in a few. To conclude, I would like to leave you with this quote from Rainer Maria Rilke, and my hope that it is a blessing to all of us. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and to try to love the questions themselves like lock rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. That's all I got? That was quick.